there's a vast difference between seeing pictures of the Grand Canyon or hearing a description of the Grand Canyon and actually standing at the Grand Canyon. There's a vast difference. I've experienced that difference. I had heard for years about the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, but at one point I had an opportunity to go. And as I stood there, the words that I heard, the pictures I had seen, did not do justice to how extraordinary the Grand Canyon is. Well, in like manner, there's a vast difference between hearing about the resurrected Jesus, hearing songs and hearing sermons, and actually experiencing the resurrected Jesus. There's a big difference. And I want to talk to you about what it looks like when you actually experience the risen Lord Jesus, the difference that it makes in your life. And so keeping that in mind, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We are going to begin reading in verse 24. John chapter 20. Verse 24, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's living word. John 20, verse 24, the Bible says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together this morning. Father, what a joy and privilege it is to gather together on this resurrection day and ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. Lord, we are here to lift up the matchless name of Jesus. We are here to celebrate the finished work of Jesus. We are here to celebrate the empty tomb. We are, Lord, overwhelmed by your grace and your power and your love that you have displayed for us. We're here to worship you. And we ask that you would meet with us in a special way, that you would move in our midst by your Spirit, so that we might leave this place transformed. Not just hearing songs and sermons about the resurrected Jesus, but personally experiencing the resurrected Jesus. Lord, would you move with power in our midst? Lord, would you anoint this message, anoint the hearers, and just have your way. I ask that you would establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The Bible records that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. He was buried, and early on the third day, he rose from the grave. And after his glorious resurrection, Jesus began to appear to different people, to different disciples. And earlier in John chapter 20, he appears to a group of his disciples, but Thomas was not there. And the other disciples come to Thomas and say, Thomas, we've seen Jesus alive from the dead. And Thomas says, I'll not believe. Unless I see the the physical nail prints on his hand and touch them, and the, the, the spear mark in his side and touch it with my hand, I will not believe. And so in the text we just read together, Jesus appears to his disciples again, and Thomas is there. And Thomas personally experiences the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you four realities, four realities that occur when you experience the resurrected Jesus personally. Not just hearing about him, but personally experiencing him. The first reality is this. He will turn your turmoil into peace. He will turn your turmoil into peace. Now, when he met with the disciples earlier in John chapter 20, before uh, Thomas was in the room, it says that in verse 5, when he stood among them, I'm sorry, verse 19, when he stood among them, he said, Peace be with you. And then when he comes back to the disciples, and Thomas is there, eight days later it says, in verse 26, that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Here's something you need to understand about Jesus. He comes to bring peace. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls him the Prince of Peace. Say, wait, what kind of peace? Well, Jesus gives us peace with God. So you need to understand that God is holy. And we've all disobeyed the holy God. We've all done things God's told us not to do. We've all done things God's told us not to do. And because of our sin, we are separated from a holy God. It's as if a barrier of impurity, our impurity, stands between us and a relationship with God. That's why the cross is so important. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. He shed his blood so that he could take our punishment and forgive us of all of our sins. And when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we personally experience the resurrected Lord Jesus, he washes away our sins, he washes away that barrier of impurity, and brings us into a relationship with the Holy God. He gives us peace with God. It says in Romans 5.1 that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives us a relationship with God. He gives us peace with God. And here's what you need to understand. If you have peace with God, you will experience the peace of God. A peace that comes from knowing everything's going to be okay. I have a relationship with God. I have a future in heaven. Everything's ultimately going to be okay. And that peace will carry you through difficult times. It will carry you through suffering. And it will be with you even when you face death itself. See, Jesus comes to give us peace. Peace with God and peace in the midst of suffering and death. A couple of years ago, I took my oldest son to a men's conference. 
And one of the speakers there was named Jeff Struker. And Jeff Struker was an army ranger, and he fought in the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia in 1993. That battle has become very well known because of the movie Black Hawk Down. And his, there's a character portraying Jeff Struker in that movie. And he told this story to the men's conference. He said the first time he went out on the Humvees, he was driving and they had men wounded because of the great barrage of gunfire. They had a man shot and killed. And so he had to get the wounded and the, 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 the fallen comrade to safety. And so he drives the Humvee out of the, the hot zone and gets back to the base. And they unload the wounded and unload the, the, the man, his friend, who had been shot and killed. And then he was told, you've got to go back out. There, there are more. You've got to go back out into that, that, that firestorm of, of battle. But his commanding officer said this, Before you go, I want you to wash the blood out of the Humvee so the men that go with you aren't terrified. And so Jeff Struker tells a story of, of taking water and washing the blood out of the Humvee. And he said, I was paralyzed with fear. He said, I was greatly afraid. He said, but then I had this thought. I'm a born-again Christian. The worst thing that can happen to me is that I die. And if that happens, I go to heaven to be with Jesus. And he said, at that moment, God took away his fear. And he was able to get back in the Humvee and take some more soldiers and go back into the city and, and help others. Because he had peace with God. He had the peace of God that was with him even as he faced death. And when you experience the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear suffering. Jesus has defeated death. And you can have peace every day of your life as you journey to eternity. And so first of all, we see that he will turn your turmoil into peace. But let me give you a second reality that comes when you experience the resurrected Lord Jesus. He will turn your wavering into worship. He will turn your wavering into worship. In this text, Thomas is wavering. He says there in verse 25, unless I place my hands into the nail prints and the place on his side, I will never believe. He's wavering. His 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 friends had told him, we've seen Jesus alive, but he does not believe their testimony. And he wavers in this moment. And, and you and I honestly can identify with Thomas because we've all had moments when our faith has wavered. Perhaps your faith has wavered when as a teenager, you had to decide if you were going to take ownership of your faith. Up to that point, it was the, the faith of your parents. And, and, and you had to decide as a teenager, am I going to believe what they believe? Am I going to follow the Jesus they follow? Is it going to be my parents' faith or is it going to be my faith? And that moment, that crisis of belief can cause you to waver. Many have. Or perhaps you were taking a class in college and some professor with a lot of letters behind his name who sounded very erudite and scholarly casts aspersion on all the things you believe and ridicules the Word of God and ridicules the truths that you hold dear 
And in that moment, that man seemed so authoritative, or that woman, and they seemed so educated. And in that moment, you thought, is this all really true? And your faith wavered. Or perhaps your faith wavered when your life fell apart. And you wondered, is God really in control? Or you wondered, does God really love me? And in that moment, just like Thomas, you, you, you wavered. Listen to me. When you and I experience a crisis of belief, that's when we need to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And we need to remember three things. We need to remember his presence. Notice here that Jesus comes in the room. He wants Thomas to know, I'm here. And when your faith wavers, you need to understand that Jesus Christ said he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us every step of the way. Remember his presence, but also remember his love. He, he holds out his hand says, look at the nail prints, Thomas. And those nail prints verified that it was indeed Jesus Christ risen from the dead who was in the room. But those nail prints also speak of his love. Jesus Christ took the nails for us. He died on the cross in our place. And Thomas could see those visible marks, those visible reminders of his love. And by the way, he'll have those marks throughout all of eternity. So if you're ever in heaven, listen, this won't happen, but if you're ever in heaven and you run out of reasons to worship, all you got to do is just look to Jesus and see the nail prints in his hand and be reminded that he died for you and you'll be able to worship once again. Amen? So remember his love. The nail prints speak of his love for us, but also remember who he is. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, you are Lord, you are King, you are divine. He remembered the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. Remember who he is when you find your wavering. And when you experience the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way, he will turn your wavering into worship. You've probably heard of Stephen Curtis Chapman, Christian recording artist. And years ago, his family experienced a great tragedy. His teenage son was pulling up into the driveway at their home and ran over his daughter. And his daughter was killed in that moment. And you can imagine the agony. He lost a daughter. His son was absolutely devastated. His family was engulfed with darkness and grief. And I've heard Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife interviewed, and I've heard him say, in those moments, in the following days, I questioned everything that I believe. But he said, Jesus carried me through. I remembered who Jesus was. And even in the midst of his wavering, even in the midst of his devastation and his sorrow, he held tightly to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ turned his wavering into worship. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. He's risen from the dead. And he will be with you through whatever you encounter in this life. He'll turn your wavering into worship. Matter of fact, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote an album about this experience that he walked through, and it's powerful. 
And so when you experience the resurrected Jesus, he will turn your turmoil into peace and your wavering into worship. But third, he will turn your doubts into assurance. Your doubts into assurance. He says to Thomas in verse 27, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it to my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And we see that Thomas calls out, My Lord and my God. He goes from doubting to assurance. Charles Spurgeon writes that he made a splendid leap from the depths of doubt to the firm rock of confidence. And we see here in this text that Jesus gives him objective evidence. Hey, touch my hands. Touch my side. I'm really here. I'm really alive from the dead. The evidence is right here in front of you. And you say, well, wait, that's nice. Thomas had objective evidence. What about us? Do we have evidence that what we believe is true? And the answer is yes. There is overwhelming objective evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, think about the empty tomb. When this new movement called The Way, these followers of Christ began to grow in Jerusalem and Judea and surrounding areas, the the Jewish religious leaders desperately wanted to stop the movement. All they had to do was produce a body, right? Because all these folks were going around saying, he's risen from the dead. And all they had to do was say, no, here he is, he's dead. That's all they had to do. Now over in Matthew chapter 28, as the religious leaders and the Roman authorities understand what's happening, they call the guards who were guarding the tomb and say, listen, uh, we want you to tell everyone that the disciples came and stole the body by night. They paid them to to relay that story. And many still believe that story today, that Jesus Christ wasn't really resurrected, but his disciples just came and took his body away and hid it somewhere. I'll show you in a minute why that is not accurate. But the tomb is empty. There, There is no tomb with Jesus in it. That's objective evidence. Also, he appeared to over 500 people. 500 people. Over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says after he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500. And Paul says, listen, most of them, when he wrote this in the first century, most of them are still alive today. In other words, he appeared to witnesses, and you can go ask them yourself. Go knock on their door and say, hey, I heard that you saw Jesus Christ alive from the dead. Tell me more about that. And they would be able to share their personal testimony of seeing Jesus Christ risen from the dead. 500 witnesses all saying the same thing. That would hold up in a court of law, would it not? Well, that objective evidence ought to hold up in your life and my life too. But there's a third piece of objective evidence that I think is very compelling. And this evidence is the transformed disciples. Here in chapter 20 it says they were in a room and the door was locked because of the Jewish authorities. They were scared for their life. But just 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost, we see the disciples standing up in the temple complex boldly preaching about Jesus. Speaking of his death and his burial and his resurrection. How do you account for the transformation in the disciples' lives? From cowering, fearful followers in a locked room to bold preachers of Jesus in public. 
How do you explain that? The answer is, they had seen Jesus alive from the dead. The stolen body theory doesn't account for transformed lives. I mean, if they had just stolen the body and hidden it somewhere, that would not give them the courage they need to, to preach publicly. As a matter of fact, Chad Meister writes, Historically, people have been willing to die for what they think is true, even if what they believe turns out to be false. But people are not willing to die torturous deaths for what they know to be a blatant lie. And the disciples preached the crucified and risen Jesus until their martyrdom. All of them except for John, who died in prison for preaching Jesus. They believed that Jesus Christ was alive because they personally experienced him. And the empty tomb and the witnesses and the transformed disciples are are pieces of objective evidence for us to to learn from and to, to believe in. But not only is there objective evidence for the resurrected Jesus, there is subjective evidence. In other words, personal experience evidence. Look what Jesus says here in John 20, verse 28. Thomas answered, he saw the objective evidence. He saw the hands. He saw the the place in his side. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Do you only believe because of objective evidence? Look what he says. He's going to talk about us right here. Look what he says. Blessed are those who who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about you if you're a believer. He's talking about me. When I was nine years old, I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. My pastor walked me through the Romans road. The Spirit of God was drawing me to the Father. And I called upon the name of the Lord. And I was saved. I'd never seen Him. But at that moment, Jesus saved me. And now I have... Decades of subjective evidence that Jesus Christ really is alive. Because Jesus Christ has been personally changing my life. Look up for a second. Look at me. I'm not the same person I was five years ago. You know why? Jesus is changing me. I'm not perfect. I've got, I've got a long ways to go. He's still working on me, but he's changing my life. The, the old hymn says... He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. And so we have that objective evidence and that subjective evidence that Jesus Christ really is alive. And the resurrected Jesus will turn your doubts into bold assurance. But there's a final thing I want you to see as we think about personally experiencing the resurrected Jesus. He will turn your turmoil into peace. He will turn your wavering into worship. He will turn your doubts into assurance. But fourth and last, he will not allow you, listen, he will not allow you to be defined by your failures. And this is so important. He will not allow you to be defined by your failures. Based upon this one passage of Scripture, you know what we call Thomas? You've called him this, I've called him this. We call him Doubting Thomas. And that's unfortunate, isn't it? That that's how we think of him. As a matter of fact, you need to understand Thomas had some bright moments. Over in John chapter 11, when Jesus Christ heard of the death of his friend Lazarus and was going to journey back to Judea, and it was dangerous because people wanted to kill him, 
Thomas said, I'm willing to go with you and even die. Wow, it's pretty powerful. Thomas taking the lead and courageously following Jesus. But based upon this one moment of wavering, this one moment of, of doubt, we call him Doubting Thomas. Let me ask you a question. How would you like to be defined forever by one of your greatest failures? What if we took the, the, the greatest failure you've ever experienced and attached it to your name? What if you told a, a blatant lie that got you in all kinds of trouble and we called you Lying John or Lying Jane? Or you did something that you shouldn't have done, something immoral, and we call you Immoral Mark or Immoral Susan. How would you like it if your greatest failure was forever attached to your name? Notice, Jesus doesn't call him Doubting Thomas. As a matter of fact, even though Thomas is wavering, even though Thomas is having a difficult time, Jesus was not through with Thomas. And we see that Thomas, after this episode, was mightily used by God. Over in Acts 1, the disciples are gathered together. They're praying in the upper room, anticipating the Spirit falling on them to empower them to preach the gospel. And guess who's in that upper room? Thomas is there, faithfully praying waiting for God to empower him so he could preach the gospel. And history records that in A.D. 52, Thomas journeyed all the way to India. The first missionary to come upon India's shores and begin to preach the gospel. And the effects of the ministry of Thomas in India are still being experienced today in that nation. God was not through with Thomas. Jesus was not through. Jesus would not allow his greatest failure to mark his life. There's a story that I read about Billy Graham in his autobiography. Early in his ministry... There was another young man who was an evangelist, and they were friends and got to know one another. And this young man had begun to buy into some liberal ideas about the Bible. And this young man, friends with Billy Graham, began to doubt the authority of God's Word and slowly began to walk away from the non-negotiables of the faith. And Billy Graham said in those moments, as he had conversations with this young evangelist, his faith began to waver. And Billy Graham began to think, is this all really true? Is the Word of God authoritative? Is it going to be the foundation for my life and for my preaching and for my ministry? And he tells the story of walking into the mountains in California one evening. And he found, a, he found a stump, and he, he opened his Bible, and he, he placed it on the stump, and he knelt down, and he began to pray. And he said, Lord, I don't pretend to understand everything in your word, but I believe it is your word. And I will believe it, 
and I will preach it, and I will build my life and my ministry upon it. And after he settled things on that mountain, Billy Graham records that his preaching was was attended with, with unusual power from on high. God seemed to bless his his decision to nail it down and say, I will believe the Bible. Now, isn't it interesting that we don't call Billy Graham Doubting Billy? Isn't that interesting? That moment of wavering. We don't call him Doubting Billy. We know him as a great evangelist who has been used by God to see millions swept into the kingdom of God. Because Jesus did not want Billy Graham's life to be defined by that moment. He wanted Billy Graham's life to be defined as being an instrument in the hands of Almighty God. And it's it's the same with you. Listen to me. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, you don't have to be defined by your greatest failure. You see, he died on the cross, which means he forgives you of your failures. Amen? And he rose from the dead, which means he gives you the power to set a new trajectory for your life. So you don't have to be defined by your failure. You don't have to live in your failures because Jesus is alive. When you personally experience him, he will transform the direction you're headed. He will not allow you to live in your failures. So here's the the point of it all. Jesus Christ defeated death. He's alive forevermore and he will transform your life when you personally experience him but hear me there's a vast difference between hearing about the resurrected Jesus and personally experiencing the risen Jesus my question for you today is this have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior 